Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the topics that we get the most questions about is dealing with anxiety. We're living in a very anxious time for a lot of people. And part of the reason that we're anxious is because there are very real challenges out there that we're facing, both individually in our own lives and collectively as a group, as a society. But we're also influenced by the natural tendencies of the brain, which is easily influenced by fear and threat. So today we're going to be focusing on how we can see those threats more clearly and become the right amount of concerned. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I love this topic. Dealing with anxiety has been personally extremely useful. Yeah, totally the same for me. I've said on the podcast in the past that if I tend in a direction, you know, people can tend maybe more toward anxiety or anger or sadness. I'm definitely on the anxious side of the spectrum. So I'm glad that we're going to be talking about this today. It's also been really useful in my life. I would love to start with a really basic question, which I also think is just a really important one for interacting with this topic. Why is it hard for us to seek threats clearly? Like, why do we struggle to understand how worried we should be about something? Yeah. Well, first, we do see a lot of threats clearly, but we tend to be biased toward overestimating them and underestimating opportunities. So it's more like a bias that becomes habitual inside us. And so if you think about the evolutionary basis for it, there's a classic example. In one case, you think there's a tiger in the bushes about to eat you, but in fact, there is no tiger, all right? In the second kind of mistake, you think that the coast is clear, there is no tiger, but in fact, there's one about to jump and get you. What's the risk of making the first mistake? Eh, needless anxiety. What's the risk of making the second mistake? No more mistakes forever. Your dinner. Yep. And so we have a brain that evolved to make the first mistake of overestimating threats a thousand times over to avoid ever making that second mistake even once. And that becomes really baked into us and embedded in a whole architecture of the brain. And then last, we have, of course, modern societal influences. If we're continually bombarded with TV shows in which there's one terrorist attack after another this week, or if we're aware of real news like random shootings or wars or plagues, things like that, we tend to live in this sort of miasma of dread that we have nothing we can do about. And we become trained to it. And one of the things about negatively emotional experiences is that they sensitize the brain over time, Mm -hmm. increasingly. And there's not much of a similar process of sensitization toward positive experiences Mm -hmm. and toward opportunities. Mm -hmm. So if you've had, a, a, let's say, a factually really tough life, understandably, your brain becomes increasingly sensitized toward fearfulness, irritability, and withdrawal or attack, right? I think that for me, it's really helpful to have a sense of that that evolutionary basis for things. Because it, it is possible to go a little too far with evolutionary psychology and start making a lot of like guesses and inferences that that we can't disprove, so we're all just theorizing over here. But if we think about it, what we'd consider even like a relatively minor inconvenience today, like catching the flu, 
was essentially a life and death issue thousands of years ago. But the brain that we're carrying around today has got a lot of the same machinery. It's not identical, but it's got a lot of the same machinery that it had a million years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, and certainly 10,000 years ago. So it's not even necessarily that like our brain is overreacting. It's more that it's reacting accurately to circumstances that just don't exist for us anymore. Right. Which gets at the difference that's been profoundly useful for me personally between seeing clearly and being anxious about it. So my background is a rock climber, many, many experiences in which I'm in a very threatening environment, standing on little edges of rock or clinging to them that are the less than the width of a pencil, sometimes the width of a pencil lead, and mm -hmm. the wind is whistling, I'm a thousand feet off the deck, and I'm having the time of my life. Because even in that threatening environment, I feel very competent and resourced to deal with it, both in terms of my skills, my background, the fact that it's a familiar route, there's a rope on me, and I've got a competent partner who's holding the other end, things like that. So it's really important to realize that we can appraise threats accurately. And even with an understandable mild amount of anxiety around the edges, which does tend to improve performance if it's fairly mild and around the edges and not invasive and overwhelming, but we can deal with threats without presuming that we have to worry about them or ruminate about them or feel caught up in this kind of overwhelming bodily sense of, of dread. Really, really important. Just because the threat system is activated in the brain does not necessarily mean that we need to be upset about it. It's important to tap into inner resources of things like calm strength, resilience, foundations of well-being, such as in the program that you were kind enough to talk about in the beginning, and very much so tap into resources around us with other people and do what we can to build a better world that is less threatening and more resourced for everyone, particularly the most vulnerable among us. I mean, we can do all these things without being invaded by fear or hatred. Can I tell you a personal story? And I'm going to admit something here. I, I love it when you admit things on the podcast, Dad. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things. It gives me more material in our personal life also, which I'm, I'm very appreciative for. The last time I took LSD, Man, you've been so revealed about this in the last couple podcast episodes, my dude. I, I truly did not see this turn for you coming. But okay, the last time you took LSD. Just that which was a long time, a long look on your time face. ago. A long time ago, right? Okay, was, anyways. actually. Uh, okay. <laughs> but not that long ago. But anyway, <laughs> just just throwing that out there and seeing the look on your face. was uh, so good. The price so of all this high-tech gear in the room I'm sitting in. Okay. <laughs> the last time I took LSD... I happen to be in one of my absolute favorite places in the world, Joshua Tree National Park. And I think it was probably at least 25 years ago, if not more. So you were alive. I think you were quite young. And I went down there mm -hmm. with some friends who shall be nameless to protect, <laughs> to protect the innocent. In any case, I went off for a walk by myself, one of the most wonderful walks of my life, actually, through the wilderness of the desert through a dry gully, slowly but surely moving through boulder fields, fairly precarious situations, sharp cactus, 
I was all by myself. I was all alone, moving cross-country for multiple miles, higher and higher and higher, until I came out in the upper desert overlooking this vast plain, entirely by myself the whole time. And then, as the day was coming to an end and the sun was beginning to set, and again, I was all alone, out in the middle of nowhere. I think I probably had half a bottle of water at that point. I needed to head back by myself, back to uh, my friends in our, in our camp. And throughout that process, throughout much of it, I began to explore what it was like to release every atom, every quantum particle of anxiety with every step. And I would watch this ongoing process in situations in which there was no basis for anxiety. I was fine. I was capable. I was stepping. I was moving through the boulders. I was climbing over some. I was ducking under others. It wasn't freezing cold. I was okay. And still, there was this ongoing upwelling of anxiety in my body, that feeling in the body of fearfulness. And I began to appreciate how the brain generates, I think, due to evolutionary purposes, an ongoing trickle of anxiety that I call delusional anxiety. It's just this ongoing trickle in the background to keep us on our toes. And for many people, that trickle is more like a stream based on their history or maybe their temperament. And it was really interesting to see what it was like to keep releasing it and gradually start being able to take a full step and then multiple steps in a row to be looking around, to be moving my body without any anxiety at all in the streaming of consciousness. And that was a profound process of both releasing habits down to a very granular level of anxiety within myself and to recognize the possibility of moving through life in this way with clear seeing, with appropriate vigilance, a recognition of dangers, being purposeful and direct. And as anxiety clears, what then becomes more and more revealed, more and more available to us, is this ongoing underlying sense of well-being and even an almost ecstatic delight in simply the next step. Mm. Well, I think that's a wonderful, particularly aspirational stance for people in terms of how to interact with anxiety. And I also think that there's something in there that is really, really useful. Like, what are the parts of this thing that are helpful for us versus the parts of this thing that are not particularly helpful for us, right? Because I can say for myself, there have been plenty of times in my life when anxiety was really in service yeah. of my best interest. When it was appropriate for me to be anxious, where being anxious caused me to take steps that I really needed to take in my life. Also, there are just like situational things where there are circumstances where, yeah, it makes sense to be thoughtful. Like your house, my childhood home, it's on the edge of open space in Northern California. And over the last couple of years, there have been a lot of measures put into place by the county and the state to prevent fires. And it could really make sense for you guys to pull some plants out of the backyard, as you did, that were highly flammable. But is it useful for you to wake up every morning really concerned about the possibility of the house burning down once you've taken those steps? 
I, I don't think it is, probably. I think oh, that it's right. pain without gain. Yeah. yeah. So the suffering. value is all, absolutely. So the value is all in how do you get to where you need to go to protect yourself in a thoughtful way? And then can you stop there? And that's the question that I really want to ask you about here, Dad. Sweet because, spot. yeah, because I know that for me personally, I can be totally rational in half of my brain about the fact that I'm actually okay and I don't need to be anxious and it's all all right. While having the other half of my brain freaking out regardless of this fact that I know rationally that I don't need to worry about something to the extent that I'm worrying about it. And so I'm wondering how you've worked with people about this mm. and maybe some steps that you go through yourself because you mentioned in the intro interacting with these topics on a personal level to kind of calm out those needless forms of anxiety once you've already gotten the value out of it? Yeah, great question. So first, with regard to my example, there's a lot of automatic, unnecessary anxiety to keep us on our toes. That makes sense if you're in the Stone Age or in the, the jungle even before that, but which it really is just not necessary today. Second point, very often things will happen. You know, there you are driving along and suddenly a car jumps in front of you. Of course you feel anxious in the beginning. And since it takes a while, literally, to metabolize cortisol, if you're still sitting and you're not moving very much, which, which accelerates the metabolism of that stress hormone, then you tend to sit in that feeling even after 10 minutes later, clearly there's no longer any threat to you driving along the highway. So it's, it's, it's okay, it's understandable that we have these surges. It's definitely true that some people should worry a lot more than they are <laughs> worrying. Mm. And typically about long-term threats, such as the fading of intimacy in a marriage, or sure, deferring yeah. year after year, the accumulation of any kind of functional savings for when you eventually don't have an income, putting off dealing with a health problem, putting off exercising. Yeah, and I think that having a degree of self-awareness here about what are the things that you're prone to overestimate and what are the things are you prone to underestimate is incredibly useful. Fantastic. It also helps to be aware of the turbochargers inside you. Like mm -hmm. me, one of my turbochargers is feeling unwanted in a group. The mm. transference into Same. the present, yeah. now freaking 60 plus years later, of experiences I had of being unseen, left out, and kind of basically unwanted, unvalued in groups of peers. Mm. So now here I am in these situations where I'm objectively completely wanted and included, and yet there's still that little Ricky feeling that's present for me that can get anxious about the least evidence of being left out or slighted. So it helps inside yourself, if you can, to tease apart what is proportionate. What is proportionate? What, what's today, what's yesterday, yeah. for sure, totally. Yeah. What's called for? If suddenly yeah. you smell smoke and you look around and your back bedroom is burning, it's proportionate to go into a panic. And, you know, I've, as I've explained to, you, to, to your mom, honey, I have a very simple plan. Step one, grab you. <laughs> Step two, <laughs> get my shoes. Step three, get the car keys and leave. You know, in that order. <laughs> right? Well, just to tell another story, because I think it's so germane to this moment, and I'll tell it really quickly. When we were super young, we were living in a different place. It yeah. was a kind of a complex of condos and things like that. 
And there was a situation where part of the condo was on fire or part of the, the complex was on fire. And I was probably like two years old or something. And I don't really remember this at all, to be honest. I have the vaguest memory of one piece of it, which was getting into the car. We all piled into the car. You ran back into the complex to retrieve the, I think, floppy disks at the time of what would eventually become your first book and a, a variety of other, other and work you've a done. teddy bear. Your and a, and you come back with a the the floppy disk and my teddy bear and the car keys and, and the car keys. We jump into the car and you, you kind of turn around and look at me and you're like, "Okay, who wants to go and get some pizza?" <laughs> and it's become just a legendary story in our family because I think it's such a great example of like, okay. You see the threat, you respond to the anxiety, you get in the car, you get out of there, and then you go, okay, what's next? Dinner. You know, not not in a weird (laughs) way. (laughs) Yeah, got to feed the kid. But just in a like, well, what do we got left to do? Okay, I guess we're just going to go and see what happens now. (laughs) That's right. The story had a relatively happy ending. It all worked out okay. But, you know, that was how you responded to threat in that moment. And I think that it's such a good example of how, like, that's actually really available for people. That's a sweet story. Yeah. I still remember it. Your mom was giving me the stink eye the whole time. Like, oh, she, aren't I, you, I recall. Aren't her you still freaked out? Freaking like, out. You know, yeah. What can we do? We don't know what's going to happen. Let's go get some pizza. <laughs> you yeah. know, totally. <laughs> have a different. Well, actually, that raises a really interesting issue, which has to do yeah. with you get two people, person A, person B. And person A is really worried about something. And person B seems kind of blase about that. That could be really irritating, you know, to person yeah, A. And then totally. it gets to a dynamic in which person B looks at person A and, and basically says, Why are you so worried about that? And sometimes mm-hmm. person A is right. They ought to be worried about that. And then other times it's person B who's pointing out, you know, we just don't need to worry so much about that. Right. Have you ever been in a situation like that, maybe with your partner? Oh, I mean, I think that this happens in relationships all the time. This is like one of the great sources of friction in most people's relationships, I'm guessing, is differences in temperament and in interacting with with fear-based topics. Yeah, I know that for me, I'm... To, to use Elizabeth and I, Elizabeth as my partner, I mention her on the podcast a lot. Yeah. As an example here, I am pretty prone to relational anxiety. But I am not very prone to physical, situational anxiety. And we're quite different that way. So she has a lot more concerns about things like, little things like food being left out overnight. Mm. You know, if we got a piece of food that's left out overnight, I'm probably open to, to eating it and she's probably not. And yeah. And we've certainly gotten into some little silly arguments about like whether or not you eat the food, you know. And I think that a lot of it is just about like reconciling that comes down to appreciating the other person's perspective mm. and trying to take a step in their direction. Yeah. Taking a step back from the anxiety itself, being able to see it a little bit more objectively, but also being empathic toward another person's experience. One of the things I've really thought about a lot in my life recently is like, what is this step costing me? And if the step doesn't really cost me anything, why not take the step? Like we get so wrapped up in our own perception of reality and just like loosening around it a little bit and going, it costs me nothing to respect your experience a little bit more. Why not? You know, why am I so attached to my way of doing it? And so that's been something I've been playing around with a lot recently. One thing that it's helped me a lot is to be aware of the term that you're familiar with, 
being counterphobic. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and that's definitely my tendency. Yeah. Yeah, to talk about myself, um, again, this is where we can make errors. So what do we do when we're with other people who have concerns? And our first reaction is to sort of put their concerns back in the bottle with a cork mm. in it. Yeah, totally me. Yeah, in part because if we really started opening to their concerns, it would stir up a lot of anxiety in us. So we solve our internal problem through an externalized fix, right? Which is an example yeah. of a broader and problematic pattern. And on the other side of it, if you're the person who's concerned about something, maybe you feel uneasy about something, and which is pretty vulnerable because anxiety at bottom is about threat that's ultimately anchored in mortal danger deep down inside. There you are, you're worried about something and you tell somebody and they dismiss your concern or they tell you that somehow you shouldn't be scared or that you're exaggerating things. That's pretty irritating, right? And another different version of that is one that relates to my own childhood in which I grew up with pretty anxious parents who themselves grew up during the Great Depression, and in my dad's case on the ranch with a lot of physical danger, and in my mother's case, raised by a single mother with an alcoholic and disengaged father, a lot of emotional, interpersonal danger, and as well as a fair amount of poverty in mm. both their backgrounds, really. In that context, they were really pretty alarmed about little things. And after a while, I just started becoming counterphobic. I would tune them out and push it away. And as a result, I ended up taking some risks and physical risks in wilderness and in life that somehow I managed to live through. And also, I deferred forever, ever saving any money because my parents were mm. super savers, because that's where they came. You know, They would clip coupons and they were super careful about that. And that just felt like raining on my parade. So I, mm. I don't know, tossed the baby out with the bathwater as it were. And sometimes to a fault, we can push away very useful information about threats, which by the way, have to do often with probabilities. You know, right? Yeah, for sure, totally. Uh, we're all pretty good. If we see someone with a knife running right at us, we're, that's easy. But what do you do with a friend who says, oh, there's a 50% chance that you're going to get stabbed on that street. And you think 50%, that's way too high, forget it. And you walk down the street and, you know, it was really closer to a one in a hundred chance. But guess what? On that day, you got in trouble. See, so part of what's difficult in, in terms of how we interpret threat information is that it's often not either or. It's often more probabilistic. And then we have to make estimates about what's the accurate probability, let's say, of some harm coming to us or, or others. Yeah, I mean, amidst all the other things that the brain struggles with, assessing probability is one of the ones that mm. is the hardest for it. And particularly situations like what you're talking about, where there's not a very high chance of something happening. But if it did happen, it would be utterly catastrophic for you. Yeah. So how do you how do you factor that into your life? You know, even if it's a one in ten thousand chance. Like if I knew that there was uh, skydiving, I don't know what the chances are of my parachute not opening, but I know that they're too high for me to ever skydive. Uh. So just because it's <laughs> not worth it to me, you know, even if it's a one in a hundred thousand chance, it's yeah. just not worth it to me. So I just know that that's an activity that I'm probably not going to do in my life because hey, I like my life and I don't want to take that risk. I'm sure it's an awesome activity. No, no slander to anybody who enjoys some skydiving. You're welcome to do that. It's just, it's not for me. 
And so I would love to kind of take this in a slightly more kind of practical direction and maybe offer some things that have been really useful for me as somebody who does struggle from time to time with more of an anxious temperament, some things that I've done to kind of get some space and try to see threats a little bit more clearly. And a lot of this is, of course, informed by your work, Dad, and things that we've Mm. talked about many, many times over the years. So this is just sort of a, a sequence that works for me that I was thinking about when I was doing some prep for the episode. For me, it can be really, really helpful to just start by literally noticing that I'm feeling anxious. This is sometimes called affect labeling, where you take a moment to go, oh, I'm feeling this feeling. This is what this feeling is for me. And it's often associated with some really basic somatic markers. Like for me, I start to feel almost a buzzing sensation in kind of my chest and the base of my throat. That's the way that anxiety shows up for me. Maybe my hands will start to get a little shaky. And so just doing some very, very basic body calming practices when that starts to pop up can be really useful, whether it's a little meditative practice, if you want to put it that way, or if it's just some good belly breaths, whatever it is that does it for you. Sometimes I just like to shake my hands really aggressively or kind of shake my arms out, whatever it is. And then third, I try to kind of take a little bit of a step back from whatever my experience is. Any form of fear or anxiety tends to move us into a extreme relationship with a very narrow point, at least in my experience. I get deeply focused on the one thing that's freaking me out, and I totally lose touch with everything else that's going on in my life. So just being able to establish a slightly wider perspective is really, really powerful for me personally. And then fourth, I try to do some kind of a little bit more cognitively oriented, take an inventory of what's going on. In part, that's probably because that's kind of a coping mechanism for me, but it can also be useful on its own merits. You can see the situation, you can try to appraise, okay, what is the actual worst case scenario here? And then alongside that, what's the best case scenario? And then really importantly, what is all the stuff in between those two scenarios? It's really easy to fall into black and white thinking, particularly when we get really afraid about something. And so getting a sense of the actual spread of possibilities can be really, really useful. Then fifth, I try to see all of the alternative stuff. What's another way of holding what I'm concerned about? What are some of the other possibilities that could be coming up? If I'm socially anxious because I go, oh, this person just probably really doesn't like me because they did this thing. Well, what are the other reasons that they did that thing? Like maybe they were just having a bad day. Maybe they were preoccupied with something else. Like what are the other alternatives? And then I try to make a plan. I try to figure out what am I actually going to do? Because we were talking about a little while ago, anxiety is useful in as much as it moves you into action or makes you do something. And from there, it's mostly just pain. (laughs) So a lot of this is about creating a specific agreement with myself about what I'm going to do. Okay, I'm going to do A, B, and C. I'm going to do it in the next week. And then I'm going to do my best to drop the stone of this feeling because it's just not helping me out anymore. And then finally, it's the acceptance piece of the whole thing. I'm feeling this thing. It doesn't feel great, but it's the feeling that I'm having right now. I'm in this situation. I don't like it. It's kind of freaking me out, but it's where I am right now. And that's the piece of it that I think is both the most valuable for me and the one that I struggle with the most, because it is often really challenging to 
execute on that letting the anxiety go part for a whole lot of different reasons, including that it's just kind of a habit like you were talking about before, Dad. So that's a roadmap that works pretty well for me. And I'm wondering for starters, if you have any thoughts about it or if you'd like to add anything else. My first thought is you ought to write a book. That's usually my first and third and fifth thought about you, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there one day. I, I, I will promise a book at some point, maybe. Oh, you heard it, folks. Possibly. And you better not edit that out it's of the a, recording it's a vague. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a very short book, more like a pamphlet, but we'll, well see. I, we'll you see. got seven chapters right there and a seven-point mm. plan. And anyway, to take it, though, to the depth here, the number seven, acceptance. And in that is a kind of existential acceptance, of course. Oh, in, totally, yeah. Yeah, in which you're getting in the airplane, it's about to take off. You know that statistically some tiny, tiny, but still a, a real percentage of planes crash on takeoff. You know there's nothing you can do about it. Can you surrender? Can you accept? Can you surrender to the possibility of the ultimately bad thing? And ultimately, can you be at peace uh, with your own ending? And also, sadly, with a lot of compassion for the other 200 people on the aircraft, you know, mm. can you hope it turns out well for them? So acceptance and surrender to the ultimate is really a piece of this too. Mm -hmm. It's not to be foolish or reckless, but there's something in this about, you know, the next breath may not come and to live bravely with that continuously is for me the ultimate kind of circuit breaker of anxiety. It grounds it out, but it takes a lot to do that. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that's been like most useful for me in the material of yours that I've interacted with, which is obviously a lot of material, mm. is just the idea of, okay, figuring out what is the actual worst case scenario in a situation, being honest about it, and then going, all right, can you get okay with that worst case scenario? Because if you can get okay with the worst case scenario, you can be okay with everything else. Yeah, and to be clear, this approach is not at all anything I invented. And yeah, in a sense, of course. you can find it tracing back in many traditions, including lately there's been a lot of attention to the Stoics, Greek philosophers mm -hmm. of Stoicism. But it, at an emotional level, it's very intimate to just slow it down and go, okay, here I am, who am I, <laughs> what am I? And really fast, I think, it gets to the ways in which every moment is an extraordinary gift. You couldn't make it yourself, you couldn't earn it, it's simply in the arising of both inner and outer reality, as it arises, it's an extraordinary gift, even with the pain in it, and I understand people who make a choice. I had a dear friend who died and who made a choice toward the end of his life to shift into palliative care and no longer seek treatments for his you know, metastatic cancer and he eventually died. And in all that, I can understand someone who says, you know, on net, I'm, I'm ready to leave, really. You know, yeah, it's still, it's a gift, but in it is a lot of pain and it's not going to ever get better, and the pain is is adding up and intensifying, and it's okay. I'm, I'm ready to go. Fine. And meanwhile, when that's not the case, the arising is an extraordinary gift that can end in a blink at any moment. 
And to live with both of those, to live with a, a profound loving gratitude for what's arising while holding it lightly and knowing that that gift can slip through your fingers at any moment. It may sound like airy-fairy. Yeah, if you just like come into the immediacy of your experience, you realize, A, it's amazing. B, it could stop. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right. <laughs> You know, that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like either fight it or you go, whoa, <laughs> right? And along the way, you know, you do what you can, including running mm -hmm. the burning apartment and get your car keys. What can happen with people sometimes who are anxiety prone? I've never fallen into this trap myself, but I think that it's possible that our dear mother has from time to time. Uh -oh. uh, so maybe you could speak for <laughs> some, some personal experience counseling her occasionally. Sometimes I'm what getting anxious <laughs> about where this is going because I'll get in trouble. Uh, no, no, I, it's, it's fine. She probably doesn't listen to the podcast mostly. But anyways, <laughs> so, for, <laughs> so particularly for people who are a little extra anxiety prone, is sometimes they can get to this really tough spot where they become anxious about being anxious. Mm. Their anxiety becomes kind of a circle. And I'm wondering if you've worked with people who have dealt with this, maybe other than mob, and I, what, if anything, you help people with when they're going through that experience. I definitely have known people who have grown up in environments in which they were under a lot of threat, whether it was inside their family or in the neighborhoods they grew up in or, or their culture because they were systematically attacked or it was a very turbulent, physically threatening environment. And they've just sort of learned to be very keyed up. And as a teacher who would take people through practices of calming and tuning into your own inner strength, I've definitely had many people who report initially that they can't do it. For one, they're concerned about bringing attention inward per se. Because when you bring your attention inward, if you've grown up in a home environment with a highly unstable, even abusive parent, it's like being in a cage with a, an erratic lion who could attack at any moment. You better not take your eyes off that lion, right? And so if you bring your attention inwardly to tune into your body sensations while you breathe or something, the lion might pounce. So there's that understandable concern that's helpful for people to, to get. And then there's the fear that if you start feeling kind of happy, that's when you will lose your vigilance of what's happening around you, or you will be specifically attacked for being happy. So it's particularly dangerous to start moving into emotionally positive experiences. So what to do? It's really helpful to keep shoring up the resources of feeling accurately uh, strong and capable inside yourself, to shore up the accurate recognition of resources around you that are supportive and protective, that's really helpful. And also over time, one little step at a time, gradually helping the body to calm down increasingly while continuing to notice that you're still okay. Mm. That part's really important. You are calming and feeling better inside while continually noticing that the walls are still standing, the lights are still on, nobody's jumping out of the bushes to get you, you're still breathing, you're still okay. As you gradually, bit by bit by bit, lower your guard, or gradually, bit by bit by bit, remove the bars of your invisible cage. I think that was great. 
and we could talk about anxiety for probably several more episodes. I'm sure that we will at some point, but that's about what we have time for today. So I think that's a great note to leave it on. And I had a wonderful time talking with you today, Dad, about how to manage our anxiety, understand it a little better, and see the threats around us more clearly. I began today's episode by asking Rick, why is it so hard for us to see threats clearly? And the first part of this answer has to do with the brain's general approach to threat processing, which is largely understandable given the circumstances that we evolved under. And to quickly summarize, the brain evolved to keep us alive, not to keep us happy. And a great way to keep you alive is to keep you scared. Anxiety performs a really, really useful evolutionary function, right? It keeps you away from harm. And particularly, the brain evolved to make one mistake over and over and over again so we would never make a second mistake. And the mistake that it evolved to make is to jump away from the imagined tiger in the bushes so you never make the mistake of thinking that there isn't a tiger there when there actually is. The cost of the first mistake is needless anxiety. The cost of the second mistake is you become lunch. And one of those mistakes is a lot worse than the other one. And that's one part of the answer. Another part is that back then, things that we would view as mild inconveniences today were life-threatening. And then another part of this answer is that our brain struggles to see a lot of stuff clearly, just in general. We are saddled with so many cognitive biases that make it really hard to tell what's going on out in the world accurately. We, we look at life through the lens of our own body and our own experience, and it's literally like looking through one kind of camera lens and another person looking through their camera lens, and you just see a radically different field of view. So, so much of this gets to what is your individual experience with threat? What are the unique circumstances in your life that might cause you to look at something a little sideways when another person would go, eh, I think it's just totally fine. And so what we were really trying to do here in this whole conversation is just clear out the cobwebs and get to a place where we can make a thoughtful, rational choice, where we respect the fact that, yes, we are anxious, yes, circumstances can be scary, and yes, we want to move into action without feeling a lot of what I'll call bonus pain, unnecessary fear and anxiety. And again and again throughout the conversation, Rick returned to a very Rick very existential, very kind of meta point about, frankly, our relationship with death and the comfort that we have or don't have with the idea that, yep, the next breath could be the last one. Can we really come to terms with that? And can we both appreciate the beauty of life while also accepting the fact that it's going to end? And along the way, hey, it would probably improve our quality of life a little bit if we felt a little bit less anxiety. And that can be really helpful as just a basis from which to operate from. But also, as I said to Rick during the conversation, hey man, just knowing that doesn't necessarily help me put the stone down. And in the course of exploring how can we actually get some space from our anxiety and lay these experiences down a little bit, I shared a process that I typically go through when I'm dealing with an anxious experience. And to quickly summarize it, first, you notice the feeling. Wow, I'm feeling anxious right now. Then second, you go through some basic body calming practices. Can you take a deep breath? Can you slow down? Can you let the body relax? Because anxiety is so somatic in its nature. Then third, can you take a little bit of a step back? 
can you go from the immediate and the local, which can be terrifying, to the bigger, broader picture, which often has a little bit more resource in it for you? Then fourth, take inventory. What's the situation? What can you actually do? What is all of the stuff that exists between the best-case scenario and the worst-case scenario? Then fifth, try to see the alternatives. What's another way of looking at the situation that might allow you to be emotionally freer around it, that might allow you to feel less anxiety about it? Sixth, make a plan. Define what you're going to do. Have it be specific and time-bounded and make an agreement with yourself that once you do the thing, you really have done enough. You really are prepared. And then finally, it's the acceptance piece. And this is the piece that is the hardest. It's the piece that I struggle with the most, which is you get to a place where you've done everything that you know that you can, and now it is time, if you can, to come to terms with the possibility that things really will go poorly. Come to terms with the reality that bad things can still happen. And if you can, let the anxiety down because it's not doing anything for you anymore. So that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate it if you took a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now on. Maybe leave a rating, a positive review. Those really help us out. And hey, you can always tell a friend about it. It's probably the best way that we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And I would also like to just give you a quick reminder about Rick's revamped Foundations of Wellbeing online program. It is Rick's flagship offering. It's a year-long program that we based our book Resilient off of. And you can use the code BEINGWELL25 for 25% off the purchase price. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.